Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's evangelist is Harold Ockengay. He was a long-standing pastor of Park Street Church in Boston. Ockengay enrolled as a student at Princeton Theological Seminary, but did not complete his theological studies there. In the midst of the fundamentalist modernist controversy facing Christianity in the 1920s, he and many conservative classmates followed members of the faculty, such as J. Gresham Machen, Robert Dick Wilson, and Cornelius Van Til, who withdrew from Princeton to establish the Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia in 1929. Ockengay's message is Evangelism and the Journey Outward. Now there has been a time in American history when we have considered Christian thought and Christian action in two ways, but each one of them has been in the interpretation of a circle. If we take a center point and then construct a circle round about that point, one has been the, might say, left-wing movement of uh, theology and sociology in which uh, the social gospel has been the center the sociological need has motivated the action, and the circle would include largely the application onto all of these problems. We've called it the social gospel, we've called it the liberal movement, we've called it uh, by other names, modernism and so on, and oftentimes some of us have criticized it. Then on the other hand, there's been that movement whereby we place propositional truth, divine revelation, the uh, content of theology, the person of Christ in the center emphasized regeneration, personal piety, and the transformation of individual lives. This was the center, and our whole relationship uh, revolved around that center. I don't think that either one of these is an exact interpretation of historical Christianity. I think we evangelicals, for a period, in reaction against the social gospel of Walter Rauschenbusch and those who followed him, like Harry Ward and many others we might mention, reacted a little bit too far to the right in this and made ours a circle which was self-contained. And that probably lasted for several decades. But some time ago, there was the enunciation of what was called the new evangelicalism. And I think this could best be illustrated by an ellipse. And in an ellipse, you have two points on which you construct your ellipse. And one is that great truth or that great point of divine revelation and propositional truth and theology and the integration of one's faith around the objective. And the other is the subjectivistic, the personal encounter that which uh, is involved largely in the horizontal relationships. Both of these are absolutely essential to the Christian faith. And it's only this week, as we've had the objective balancing the subjective, that we can guard ourselves from those errors and aberrations of Christian history. It's only as we have divine revelation and propositional truth as the object of our faith centering in the person of Christ and then the encounter and the experience as our own uh, knowledge and our own entering into the existential realization of it that we can possibly 
adapt both of these unto the whole realm of life and every area, whether it is economics or family life or educational life or entertainment or politics or diplomacy or what it may be, because we do not preach our gospel in a vacuum. It has to do with every one of these areas. And I'm so glad that this conference has blazed a trail to emphasize both phases of our Christian truth and our Christian life. I'd like to say one other brief thing by way of introduction. A word of apology, because uh, I feel a little bit like I was sitting here and seeing these lights. I think there are six or seven of them burned out in the course of this week, and I rather judge most of us feel just a little bit burned out from a good many of the things that we've uh, gone through in the course of the week, from early morning to late at night. If my voice gets a little bit raspy today, I hope you'll realize that uh, this is the uh, cause of it. And the second phase of apology is that I would like to say that the address which will be given to you in just a few moments when you go out uh, will not be the address that I'm going to give this morning. As I've been listening to these addresses and the encounter that has taken place personally and in group action, uh, more and more I've come to feel that I wanted to say something different. You're perfectly willing to or able and pleased to take that. I was going to talk about evangelism with a definition and then a description and then something of differentiation in it and then state that the moral incumbency stands of the Great Commission. Uh, it is unchanged. It will stand as long as the age stands until Jesus comes. That the outward look is going to reach uh, into the future by our expectancy inspiring us in the hope of the advent of Christ, which is an eschatological hope and an eschatological experience and an eschatological action. Jürgen Moltmann in his book, you know, uh, tells us how that those of us who have that hope will be the ones who take the pioneering action in the evangelical and sociological field. And then finally, the uh, equipment enables in the person of the Holy Spirit and the unction that falls upon us from him for this age. And that I believe Dr. Linzel has adequately covered this morning, and so it's in the paper and you may have it there. But I'd like to turn your attention in these few moments now, by way of conclusion of this conference and the positional papers, to a text of scripture that I think is particularly appropriate to us. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. This text is in a passage of scripture that describes the dedication of Solomon's temple. If there was any occasion in the Old Testament where there was a national occasion and a national dedication, a national prayer, and a national relationship of a people unto God, it certainly was this time. And surely, if anything, this conference has had national, if not worldwide, significance. Let us remember, as we see this whole passage of scripture, that David had prepared for the temple. Solomon had erected it at an enormous cost. That cost, if computed in modern 
values would be somewhere around $4 billion, which would make it one of the wonders of the ancient world. And when it was done, Solomon made his brazen altar, which was seven and a half feet high, or rather wide and long, and four and a half feet high. He mounted this in the midst of the representatives of the people, and then he bowed down and made a magnificent prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 6. In that prayer, he used the word if nine times, and then dismissed the people after feasting and the giving of gifts and the recognition in worship of the Lord. Later, in the night seasons, chapter 7 tells us that God appeared to him and told him that he had heard his prayer, that his eye would be upon that place. And then he said, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now let us remember that in the Old Testament, the presence of God was symbolized first by the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, which was symbolically the dwelling place of God above the mercy seat, later in the, tabern in the temple that was erected by Solomon. And the condition that uh, Solomon put in his prayer, which was a biblical condition, was that if they would pray toward that place, that is, toward the present dwelling place of God, with repentance and so on, that God would hear and that God would forgive and that God would heal. And it is illustrated, I think, by Daniel. When Daniel was in the captivity in Babylon, you recall it says that he opened his window toward Jerusalem and bowed down and prayed toward Jerusalem because that was the symbolic dwelling place of God. Since, of course, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, and since Jesus by his own flesh entered into the temple not made with hands, and now the shadows have been done away with, and those that have been uh, the forerunners of the true have been abrogated, we enter into the presence of God immediately through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he has given us the great promise that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Therefore, we don't pray to Jerusalem, we don't pray to the east, we don't have any specific place of the dwelling place of God, but we know that God is present now where two or three are gathered together and much more in the great congregation where multitudes are gathered together in his name. 17,000 last night were gathered together and it was in the name of the Lord and in a sense that was a true church there in the armory. This is a true church here and wherever you have husband and wife and child kneeling at a family altar, there is the true church. Now you see the condition that was given there was that if my people will pray toward this place, it says. Now that meant that they accepted that God was there, that he existed that there was certain revelation of a self-existent God manifested in symbolic ways before the people. And in our day, unquestionably, the condition laid before us is that we will seek the presence of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ in his church, wherever that manifestation of the church may be. 
Now when that is given, then the promise stands. I will hear, I will he forgive, and I will heal. You see, we don't have to have a vast number of people praying. All we need is a remnant of God's people. That's all that was needed in the days of Elijah. That was all that existed in the days when the Lord Jesus Christ came. There was a remnant that looked for redemption. That's all that existed in the days of St. Paul, according to Romans 11. And that's all that's necessary today. That if there's a remnant of God's people who will pray, who are encouraged that when they pray according to his will, they know that God hears them, and when he hears them, that he will answer. And he says, I will hear. What a remnant is represented in this group this morning. What a tremendous group of people we've got in America who are believing people, God's remnant, and who are ready to seek his face. Then to know that he will forgive our iniquity, as the promise is. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him turn unto our God, for he will have mercy and will abundantly pardon. God will forgive, and then to know that God will heal. What a promise that is to a nation that's torn by racial strife, a nation that's facing revolution from within, a nation that's rocked by violence and crime and by all kinds of addictions to things which are ruining individual life. To know that God promises that he will heal. This is the promise that we have before us this morning. Now I should like to suggest to you here, very briefly in these few moments, this question. Are there things from which we should repent? Is there a divine indictment which may be drawn against us today as could be drawn against Israel of old? Then, is there an invitation for us to repent and to turn unto the Lord? And then, will there be a divine intervention? Now, we could move into great detail on this, but it's going to be impossible, so I'm only going to suggest certain things that have become to me of very deep matters of conviction. The first thing is that there is an indictment that might be drawn against us as a nation and as a church. And I think that indictment has partially been drawn in this conference this week. Let's not for a moment compare ourselves with other nations or with other periods of history. It is perfectly true that if we did that, then America would still be on a very high level. If we, for instance, compared America with Germany between 1914 and 1918, uh, those years, or rather from 1918 to 1933, those years of shame and of disgrace in the German nation, or if we compared ourselves to certain aspects of the communist nations and what they do with their brutality and sadism, but you see, that's not the way that God looks at us. God looks at us according to Scripture, according to the light that we have. Remember, he that did things worthy of stripes and knew it shall be beaten with many stripes. And he that knew not to do things worthy of stripes and did them shall be beaten with few stripes, Jesus said. This is the biblical law, that according to our light we shall be judged. Now, we have had a great 
philosophic heritage that has come into this nation from the early times. This has been the, the view that God is there, that God has revealed and written his law into the warp and woof of, of nature and of human nature and of history and that man has been made in the image of God and is of infinite value, and that man is responsible to God according to that law, and that this has been expressed in the community relationships. And as a result, we've had in our background what has been called Christian civilization, and well might it be called Christian civilization. All of this is our heritage. We've had a heritage of, the, of great physical and material resources, of people that have come out of Europe seeking freedom, of ideology, of these movements, and they've been, they've been written into the warp and woof of the constitutions and of the charters of the early colonies, and then the constitutions of the states, and then the Declaration of Independence, and then into our own constitution. All this is our heritage, and we have it. And we're going to be judged according to the light that we've had. Now that means this that when we're examined today and there's injustice and we say we believe that all men are created equal and then we shut them out of housing areas and employment and education and other areas that we ourselves are inviting judgment upon ourselves because we're acting inconsistently with the light that we have. Then when we talk about pride and we say we are the people, now I admit that I belong to that group that they call the WASP, you know, and that they say still have control of America, and there's a certain comfort that lies in that, but we have to recognize these minorities and their rights and their privileges and all that ought to come here. And we could be indicted along this as far as our church life and our American life is concerned. When it comes to the matter of lawlessness today, we have even in the theologians of the church the attitude, not that we have an authority under which we walk as the aegis that controls our intellectual and moral and social judgments, but we do every man what is right in his own eyes. And this reaches not only out of our intellectual and our moral concerns, but it reaches now into all the activities of life itself until you talk about the new morality and the new theology and the new sociology and all of these things. And there is a rejection of that which is the traditional viewpoint of Western civilization and also of Christian history. Then there's the modern means of, of uh, drunkenness and inebriation. The scripture speaks about this and these people shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet you go where you will today and this is a way of life. It's a way of life in society, in the clubs, in all of the organizations, in the diplomacy, in government, in every way. It's a way of life. Then there's the promiscuity that's manifested in the new morality that time won't permit us to go and is causing this wave of infection of venereal diseases that the head of the contagious department uh, of the government says is like a great flood that's going over the great metropolitan areas of America today. And there's the prodigality. Look at the dinners that we eat day after day and throw this away because we can't possibly eat half of what they serve us and then the whole world, two-thirds of the world is hungry, as Frank Laubach says. They live on a, underneath a glass platform, and they look up and they see what we're doing up here, and they no longer are willing to stay down there being deprived and without. They're going to revolt against these things. There's an indictment that can be drawn against us in the church and in America in this particular day. And you see, when that indictment is drawn, then 
we turn to Scripture and read the prophets and read John the Baptist and read Jesus, and what do we find? Isaiah 1 describes, as you're familiar with it, how that the whole head is sick and how that the body is sick from the sole of the feet to the top of the head, that there's no soundness whatsoever but wounds and sores and purifying running sores. And then he says, as he pleads with them to turn from their their antisocial acts and says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be of scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Jeremiah says, I turn from your iniquities. He said, I'm married to you as a backslider. Say not the temple, the temple of the Lord, but let righteousness flow down as a river. Micah the same. John the Baptist, you know, says, what shall you do? Turn, he said, turn. If you have two coats, give to him that hath none. Uh, be content with your wages. Do no violence and so on. Jesus came saying, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then told men what to do. And you see this passage of scripture says to us that if thou be angry with us and thou deliver us over in Solomon's prayer, then says God, if they turn and if they bethink themselves and if they confess, hear thou from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. What it simply means is this, that we too, as Butterfield has said and John Bailey has said and Walter Kuhnert of Erlangen University has said, and others in their books, that we will stand under the judgment of history and stand under the judgment of a holy God who has written his moral law into the warp and woof of history, as Berlin did and Germany did, as England did in a measure, as Russia did, that we will also so suffer if we do not turn and repent and think again about these great things. This is the challenge which is put before us in an hour like this. It's an indictment which is drawn against us because God is angry, he hath wet his bow, he hath drawn his sword, and judgment is certainly imminent for our nation if we do not turn. Is there invitation? Remember what it says here. If my people, nine times Solomon said it, six times in the response God said it, if my people will bethink themselves. Now to bethink yourself is to think again, and to think again is the New Testament word meta, after, and nous, knowledge, metanoio, to think again. When we think again, we repent. That's the translation of that word. We change our minds. And of course, sometimes it's catastrophe. And it's sorrow and it's uh, suffering that makes us change our mind. That's the way it was with the prodigal. That's the way it uh, was in Germany after World War II when it lay in ruins. That's the way it is in many areas. It's this that brings us to repentance. But you see, the scripture says to us that if now we'll change our minds about these things. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, writing at Harper's Ferry, his history of Virginia, uh, in those days said, I tremble when I think that God is just considering the slave. And he also added that he thought that every drop of blood that had been drawn by the lash would be drawn by the sword. This is a reflection of the justice of God. Let's remember then that in this hour, when we change our minds, we change our minds for the better, and we seek to turn and to do those things that are right, both individually in our repentance, as the church in our repentance, and also we need to do it within the nation, to turn. 
And then Solomon said, and confess, we have sinned, we have done amiss, we have done wickedly. Confess one's evil, his wrongdoings, and his sin. I don't take responsibility for many of the things that have happened in this nation. I find it very difficult to find personal guilt about some of the areas of race condemnation. I find it difficult to find responsibility in many of the other things because in many ways I made no conscious contribution to many of those ills. But take a look at Daniel again for a moment as his prayer is recorded in the ninth chapter of Daniel's uh, prophecy. There you remember he prayed and this man who was one of the three most holy men of the Old Testament with Noah, Daniel, and Job, it says. Remember, Daniel said, O Lord, he said, we have sinned. And then he confessed the sins of the people, and he confessed them as his own sin, identifying himself with that sin. And he cried out, O oh God, hear. O oh God, have mercy. O oh God, forgive. Because it was his sin, he felt, as he identified himself with the sins of Israel that had driven them into captivity. If my people will bethink themselves, repent, if they will turn, that's convert for the better, if they will confess, identify themselves with the sins of the day and of their people and confess them unto God, then he says, I'll hear and I'll forgive and I'll heal. Now, because time's going, I'm going to uh, leap very quickly onto what I believe is the the proffered involvement, the undertaking that God has said that he would give, tracing your studies, what he did through Abraham, what he did through Moses in dividing the Red Sea and overcoming the Egyptians and the ten plagues and the mighty leadership through the wilderness. Think what he did through Joshua. Think what he did in the days of Hezekiah, which Dr. Linzel mentioned, or in the days of Elijah, opening the eyes of the young men to show them that uh, the powers that were with them were far more than those that were against them, or those in the days of Jehoshaphat. Just remember for a moment what God has done. And then remember this. Remember that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that God offers today, if we'll meet the conditions that are involved, that he will undertake for us once again with that omnipotence and with that goodness and with that grace. He is still exactly the same. It's interesting that in history, progress is made by waves. It never comes just steadily. It moves in waves. When the waves come, you have uh, the gathering of momentum, and then there's uh, the backwash that comes from the trough in which is all the debris and all of the flotsam and jetsam of the beach, and then finally the swell comes, and then the wave breaks upon the beach. And then it withdraws, and there's a trough again that takes back all of that flotsam and jetsam. And then once again comes another wave with a swell, and it breaks, and underneath it all the tide moves in. That's exactly the way history moves. It never moves steadily and consistently. It moves in waves. And that's the way the church moves on and will move on to that glorious climax that is yet to come in the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. And those waves that come are the waves of spiritual quickening. Now let's remember that there are providential preparations for them. And those providential preparations are negative and positive before the swell comes. The negative one is that there's a time of doubt 
a time of unbelief, a time of sin and indulgence and despair, a time of satiety with the physical and the, the material things of the world. And if I know anything about our day, this is the kind of situation we're in. Nations don't keep their covenants and words. There's a building up in business now of credit associations to find out if men mean what they say and can be depended upon in their word. Individuals are breaking their moral standards and doing what is right in their own eyes. This is the condition in which we are everywhere with our crime and violence and promiscuity and inebriation and drug addiction. These things are there. Then, let's remember there's a positive preparation, that there comes the swell before the wave breaks, and that swell is the satiety that men get with materialism and earthly pleasures, the hunger that comes out of the depth of a man's being for God, for deep calleth unto deep, the resort unto prayer and groups for Bible study, and the seeking of God's presence, until finally there's a mighty rising swell on the part of men in their expectation of what God's going to do. And then there comes the mighty wave that crashes in. Now, if you know anything about history, it broke in the 12th century under Francis of Assisi and others. It came in the 15th century in part under Savonarola, in the 16th century with Luther, Calvin, Knox and others, in the 18th century with Wesley and Whitfield and Toplady and those, and it came in the 19th century with Moody and Sankey and also in a measure with Billy Sunday. And the question is, will it come today? Will there be the swell? Will this come? Now, I'd like to suggest you just a few things as we draw to a close this morning that we can do to prepare for a quickening that can turn us back to those areas of truth and experience which will revive our Christian faith and experience. What are they? Well, the first thing that I would mention is united confession. Uh, some 26 years ago, we organized the NAE, and I stumped the country for two years in reference to that, met with hundreds and even thousands of ministers, and those were days of acrimony and days of division and fragmentization, days of bitterness in the evangelical and or the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And whenever we as a group got on our knees and confessed to God our sin, our abandonment of biblical objectives, our failures to pray, our lack of love for one another, our unwillingness to bear the burdens of our brethren, the Spirit of God came upon us in a remarkable way. I believe today that what's represented here in this group needs united confession of our divisions, our unbelief, our fragmentization, our suspicions, all of these things which have marked the evangelical cause. You know, we divided even then, 25 years ago, into the American Council and the NAE. And if that hadn't happened, there could have been a united front that would have taken in perhaps all of the evangelicals. And what we need today is for the Lutherans and the Southern Baptists and the evangelicals and the great denominations and all of these to come together. And we need a re-examination of that division and those leaders now that are outside, like myself and like others, need to recognize... 
that there ought to be a framework today for the continuation of that which is carried on right here in this conference. And it could be done. But we need unity. We need confession, united confession. And that ought to take place in the grassroots level as well as in an area like this. We need united praying. We need to lay hold, as the Heronhut people did in 1727 that started the modern missionary movement. We need to lay hold of City Lampierre and the uh, noonday prayer meetings did before the Finney, Finney revival across this nation. We need to have united praying in order that there can be the release of power. We should command him concerning the work of his hands for the gift of the Holy Spirit is faith and we ought to believe that we can have revival. We need also united believing. Now there's a difference between the kind of faith that we exercise to be saved and the kind of faith that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And if we can unitedly believe that God will do this and take the scripture teaching that revival is possible even until the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter said in Acts 3.21, repent and be converted and he shall send you Jesus and times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. We can have those times of refreshing right up to the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think that the days of revival are past. And then there's united action where together we can stand and where the, not the mathematics but the ge geometry of scripture occurs where one shall chase a thousand and two shall chase five hundred or one shall chase one and two five hundred and one a thousand and two ten thousand. That's, that's geometrical increase and that's what takes place in the great campaigns of Billy Graham and others. We need united things, united confessing, united praying, united believing and united witnessing for Jesus Christ. That's what we're finding in the student movement of Bill Bright and Crusades for Christ. They believe, they really believe today that they can evangelize the world through having these people in the nations disciple others. Now what will happen? Well, you know if you know history, what happened after all the great revivals, what happened in Europe after the Reformation was the birth of the modern era. What happened after the evangelical revival. You had John Bright and the Earl of Sh Earl of Shaftesbury and Wilberforce and you had the movement against slavery and long hours and child labor and all of these things that took place. What happened uh, was the coming of the Victorian era in morality. And if we can have revival today, it'll not only infuse radiance and power and life in the individual, so it'll be an antidote for our loneliness and for our isolation, but it'll mean that the masses of men will be moved, and out of the masses, which are the reservoir of the anti-social actions of the day, will come those great movements that can be for the glory of God and for the transformation of society itself. That's the repository of your future ministers. That's the repository of missionary work for the incumbency stands for the day. That's out of which we'll get our Christian education leaders and the support of our Christian education institutions. It'll come out of this kind of turning unto the revealed truth of God centered in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and the encounter of experience with him that's translated into horizontal relationships to men. All the times later than you think. Later than you think. 
That bullet in the atomic scientists in 1950 went back to went to three minutes to 12. It's back to eight minutes of 12 now. But when I read of what's happening along the Nile, when I read of what's happening over in Southeast Asia and what could happen, when I realize all of these things that are coming to pass in the fulfillment in this day of prophetic word, I say the time is short. And just like those people in Pompeii have been dug up today by the archaeologists and you see them in their various positions and their homes and their businesses and everything that were inundated by the ash when Vesuvius overthrew them, although they'd been warned that they may come when we too will find that if we keep on as usual that there will come that hollow cast, there will come that conflagration, there will come that final denouement, that apotheosis of judgment upon us in a day too. Therefore remember, God says, if my people, and that's you, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my faith, and turn from their wicked way, individual and social. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Oh God, heal America today. You've been listening to Harold Ockengay. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.